2: This is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers, by young farmers. I'm your host, Severin. This is something like our 300th or something like that radio show. Holy moly. And I'm happy to be joined today by Nikiko Masumoto from the Central Valley of California, second generation peach farmer. Oh, more than one generation. Well, anyway, we'll get right into it. Welcome to the show, Nikiko.
3: Thanks, everyone. Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, and you and I went to school together at UC Berkeley, and now here we are full circle talking about agriculture again.
3: I know how time flies and roots grow. It's awesome.
2: It's awesome. So let's get a little backstory on your Masumoto farm and the peaches and um, your family's history there.
3: Yeah, sure. I'm I'm super blessed and lucky. I'm the fourth generation to get to touch and work the same soil. Um, my grandfather, my Jichan, he bought the first 40 acres of our farm in 1948. Um, and this was just a couple years after he was released. He and my family was released from um, an internment camp or concentration camp in rural Arizona um, because during World War II, Japanese Americans were um, held in concentration camps. And so, he, as a young man, I feel like was incredibly brave to decide to become a farmer, to invest his life in a place, a single place, with the idea of growing healthy food for people. Um, and that's how our farm got started. And talk about growing up there, going
2: away, and coming back, and how that all transpired. Because your dad's pretty famous in the Chez Panisse set for his epitaph for a peach. And so you kind of grew up as almost like a fast bread of the slow food movement, Um, but then you went way and did uh, dance and other things. I don't remember exactly. Give us, give us that
3: chapter. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I think like a lot of rural kids, I grew up um, never wanting to farm and never wanting to come back to the region that I grew up in. Um, but thankfully, uh, my parents were, gave me freedom to do whatever I wanted and went to UC Berkeley. And it was actually at UC Berkeley in an environmental studies class that I first began to piece together what being an organic farm meant in a much larger context in a Political context. Um, And as I was studying gender and women's studies at UC Berkeley, it dawned on me that going back home to be a farmer might be one of the more radical things I could do with my life. Um, And so that's what I did. I decided to come home. Um, but not before I realized I needed to grow a little bit more and I went to graduate school to study performance and that, that experience has just made the life on the farm so much richer, being able to draw connections between art, creation and the love of the land is just one of the things I, I just love and I'm so grateful for. So that's kind of where I find myself now.
2: So let's talk about the Central Valley of California. For those who've never been there, it's almost impossible to imagine um, what it's like. Can you talk about the infrastructure, the air, the land, what you're
3: surrounded with, what the future prospects are? yeah oh my gosh! There's so much there, yes, yes. so this the central valley uh, of California is this amazing, immense valley with the Sierra Nevada mountain range on the eastern side um, and it has been turned into an amazing place for agriculture via um, lots of different systems of irrigation, and so we have. A really um, complicated and nuanced web of natural systems, fertile soil, with people's influence over the landscape. Um, and as one of my friends who's a, an activist pointed out, we now have a, um, a moment of realization that, you know, farmers, we are part of the hydraulic system now of the valley because because of our interventions into natural watersheds. Um, and I hope, I am so hopeful that um, there's actually been, I hope, a silver lining to some of the drought um, in California that we've been facing, which is n- renewed conversations about what sustainable water practices really look like and how we can shape our future to make this place um, truly sustainable, truly resilient. Um, so that's that's kind of a, a shorthand on the waterfront. Um, the, we have lots of challenges and opportunity here. Our, our valley, because of its topography, also happens to be a pocket where polluted air and um, um, air with lots of different particles sen- tends to settle. And so we can, can think of ourselves as leading stewards of air quality. And I certainly hope that our future um, continues to to be full of, of really helpful practices to make the air better. Um, I know we've been slowly, slowly chipping away at some of, the, um, some of the challenges in our air quality um, through lots of different programs. And so um, I, I'm really glad to be in a place of challenge because I think it makes me be a much more astute farmer um, and really think about my place in a larger structure and system of, of stewardship.
2: Well, it's a good thing you were raised eating peaches. You can have such a peachy outlook in a place of such profound challenge in terms of the mega-irrigation structures that uh-huh. are underlying that valley and its prospects. Let's talk about what clothes the, the valley that you're on. What clothes are you wearing there crop-wise is the valley. I know that some of those crops are quite expensive water-wise, um, and some of them are less expensive. Um, and I don't really know where pages fall on that spectrum.
3: Yeah, I'm not I'm 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 not sure in terms of the actual calculations um, where peaches fall either. Uh, I know that we've throughout the drought we've been really trying to experiment, expanding our tool chest of what we might do in worst case scenarios. Um, so last year we practiced a, an experiment on every single variety. We have about 10 varieties of stone fruit. Um, we practiced deficit irrigation and so we really cut back on the water that we used in, in portions of each field to test to see what would happen. Um, and it, it, was, it was an interesting experiment. Some of the trees really did not fare well, other trees were fine, but the fruit itself was really small. so we are doing our best to try to come up with lots of different ideas of how we might respond to water shortages. Um, and one of the other responses that we we have had because we have um, perennial crops is that we've fallowed land um, and we, we're concentrating on trying to grow the best peaches, nectarines and grapes for raisins that we can on um, smaller acreage so that you know, by using a little bit less water that way, we might um, be able to to get fact to move towards a stasis instead of depleting our water resources um, so it's a it's a it's a constant challenge and and especially when you're growing something like stone fruit and vines that you know are, are the those trees our oldest orchard is is about 50 years old and it's it's beautiful and habitats so many native bees and and plants and cover crop and so um thinking about the future And what sustainability looks like, and and if we might have to transition to growing something else, you know, it's it's something we're considering. But it's also a it's a really emotional decision um, because we I've grown up with these trees, and it's something we we don't take lightly. Um, But but for sure, I I don't think I would be in this this work if I didn't believe in the resiliency of the land and of farmers um, and that I'm committed to the bigger picture um, more than just my individual vision of what I think our farm is going to look like. Um, So yeah, maybe those peaches do help me have a better better outlook on things.
2: (laughs) Well, and there you are in um, the context of this big valley and, you know, a question I have as, an, as somebody coming in with the advantage of four generations and the, the you know, some security in terms of your markets and your systems is almost, you know, how, how are you able to use that land in that work of preparing for the future? And it sounds like this experimentation that you're doing is a part of service, is a service work towards the future in exploring uh, and investigating what might be relevant across broader acreages. Um, and I wonder maybe a little bit about the conversations that are going around, the tactics that are being explored. Um, you know, crops have changed before. Crops have, have failed before. You know, the, 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 French, the French wine industry was struck down by Phytophthora. You know, we've had the Irish potato famine. There's a whole long series of stories to do with rapid and radical shifts mm-hmm. in agricultural systems that were very well established and that had to um, reevaluate a pass a path forward and often, you know, shift quickly. And uh, I just wonder what the kind of word on the word on the street is in the Albans community and some of these other perennial communities,
1: mm-hmm. how they're
2: thinking about change and how you, as a young bud, but a young bud with four generations behind you
3: um, are, are going to navigate that space. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I I definitely find a lot of inspiration from folks in the sustainable agriculture community. Um, I just got to spend some time a couple weeks ago on an organic walnut orchard up near Sacramento in Winters, California, Um, and it was amazing to see the innovative Um, strategies that they're using to try to conserve water, to try to recharge groundwater basins. Um, And I mean, it was amazing to see 1,500 sheep grazing in a field of organic walnuts cutting the cover crop down. It It was just incredible. So I do think that there's a lot of that we are definitely not alone in our quests and in our willingness and openness to experiment with methods that that really place resiliency and, and the land ahead of um, profit and, and, and things like that. Um, now, that said, I do feel a, a privilege of being... Able to step into a lineage of farming, um, and I, I, I feel like part of the privilege of that is to embrace these experiments and to share, um, because I do have the latitude of of not having to start from scratch, um, and so I, I definitely see a continuum of experimentation and learning that can be shared across the farming spectrum of, of new farmers, beginning farmers, myself included, across generations, um, across boundaries of of folks who didn't grow up farming the land, um, but who are dedicated and committed and working now. I'm very optimistic that spaces, um, especially in sustainable ag communities, really have kept that, that kind of open spirit that I think is the key to adapting, um, adapting to the future, preparing for the future, um, and, and making sure that there's a place for as many people as possible in our food future.
2: Well, I like the spirit part, and obviously the more manure of sheep there is in the on the land, on the surface of the land, the more spirit there is in the land itself, so, mm-hmm. in terms of the diverse microflora and fauna, the creatures Uh of the land, who, as we all know from our training in organic agriculture, are drought proofers, and that soil biology is a critical ingredient for resilience. But one thing we have to remember in our spirit talk and in our biology talk is that so much of the context for farm economies on a family scale, on a on a business scale, on a regional scale is shaped by agricultural policy mm-hmm. and in transition especially it feels like getting uh, getting into a framework of possibility within the policy realm is challenging. So currently uh, the major relationship that farmers have with this crisis is framed by crop insurance and crop failures and crop challenges and crop transitions are uh, guided by the, this established program of crop insurance, and it's changed towards uh, it's it's a migrating it's a migrating framework. Um, and I guess one of the questions is, you know, how? So crop insurance currently, we know in the last 10 years, paid out. In the United States, sixty billion dollars to the top ten uh, percent of producers, and those were those are payments that were made, but basically mostly for either flood or drought, too much water, too little water, and but those payments were not made uh, in an effort to transition the kind of production system, or better said, those were not payments made. To pay for experimentation or payments made to pay for investigation or new methodologies, those were just um, just to recover money lost and crop lost. And it seems like you know, in extension, in in the in the research of our of our land grants um, and within the USDA new cover climate change program, these new six climate hubs, there's some room for investigating how to set a bounty or put a, put a purse toward the work of transition. Now, I know this is all new and we're talking about stuff that you probably haven't, you know, written papers about, but I wonder if you could just reflect in your region where would that kind of money get spent? Or what is the research that you see people undertaking just on a volunteer basis on their own farm um, that could be the kind of work supported by more transition-oriented
3: funding? Sure. Well, I, I definitely, um, I, I definitely have seen... Lots of experimentation in the organic and sustainable ag community, especially at small scale. I actually think this is an opportunity where small-scale agriculture um, might be the perfect partner because, you know, on our farm when we do an experiment um, at a small scale, the, the risk of... You know, doing deficit irrigation, we can control um, how how much we're willing to risk, and we can really pay really close attention to the results of that. So, I, I think there there might be a real great opportunity for lots of different small growers in lots of different um, climactic environments to to try new methods, whether they're with water or soil health um, or integrating animals into into production practices um, I I would hope that the the wisdom of lots of many 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 different experiments and lots of a community of learning um, could help to get us closer to a wider array of tools um, uh, that people could use at lots of different scales to transition farming from the state it is now um, on a macroscopic scale to, to something that is more resilient and much more responsive to changes in climate to um, the needs of the soil and the air and water ab- above you know above the profit margins so i think maybe there's a partnership there between small small growers to be had so
2: essentially small is beautiful but small is also tactical in terms of the experimentation needed to readapt our larger scale landscapes for the future.
3: And I, I the absolutely think so. Are prime I think it's... allies
2: for like so much. So much time is wasted um, in the discourse of pitting growers against one another. And in fact, uh, in this case, in this framing, you know, the small farmer is a huge ally of the large farmer. Um, and that's something we've seen in the organic movement that. Uh, you know, often idealists and and um, you know and hippies have gone and invented a marketplace that's now a very lucrative marketplace for larger producers to enter and and kind of like invented the whole organic sector. And um, but the, the whole the work and the discourse and the consciousness and the uh, and the kind of venues for exchange seem to be not yet very developed when it comes to this kind of resilience project and I guess the next kind of question is like where are these conversations gonna happen? How is this data gonna be shared and And what are the means by which we between these communities share these
3: experiments I think. Do you guys have a Grange? I, I'm not aware of one in our area. Um, I do think that there are social networks that are enabled through um, our digital world that are, through that, that are enabling some of this information to travel. But, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think there's, there's some room for growth in terms of how we might organize ourselves to share some of these strategies of resilience.
2: Yeah, let's explore that definitely so what else do you want to talk about
3: oh gosh well I, what I want to, I want to know about what you're hearing and some of your perspectives what what gives you hope about food and farming these days
2: well I just listened to a great talk on Sun on Saturday by Vanda Nashiva and she was talking in Southern California where um, there's a proposed campaign to spray imidacloprid and pyrethroids across the whole valley against a new invasive bug called the Asian citrus psyllid, and she was challenging mm. the community to uh, rise up and reject the spray and the poison and the destruction of, you know, multiple tropha of uh, insect life and, then, of course, the birds that rely on them and the whole fauna of the earth. But she said also, learn from the bugs. She said, learn from the pest. Uh, Use this as an opportunity to discover uh, and reacquaint ourselves with the process of evolution. Mm -hmm. And, of course, evolution and domestication are closely related phenomena. And the difference, of course, being that an evolution... In the wild, is more self-willed, and an evolution in the domestic sphere has kind of multiple vectors of will being exerted on it: the will of the farmer and the appetite of the eater, um, the particular circumstance of the place, and then what's latent or living in the will of the plant itself. Mm-hmm. And so, it's more of a truth, multi-multi vector truce there in the in the domestic landscape, but. Still, the will force of the grower and the eater and the plant itself have to negotiate openly. And it feels like for a lot of agriculture in this country, that truce hasn't been renegotiated for a while. Um, That the needs and the will of industry in terms of storability, in terms of highly productive, you know, high levels of production under optimum circumstances in terms of uniformity, those have been the predominant goals or will. That's been the will force on the human side. And,
1: uh,
2: but when she says learn from the pest, I think what she's kind of saying is learn from the adversity. Learn from the other sector of will, which is the circumstance, the ecological context that that crop uh, is, must contend with. And of course you could add to that circumstance, the circumstance of less water, the circumstance
3: mm-hmm.
2: of, you know, an unending an unending sequence of pests, uh, the circumstance of degraded soil, et cetera, et cetera. And I I feel like that's the place of interest to me now is to figure out the language of that and and the, the stance. You know, Like, let's get back into intimacy with evolution. Let's get back into intimacy with the direction that we're taking our crop species. Um, The workshop we had on Sunday was um, a grafting workshop and a top-working workshop, and we were reacquainting ourselves with the other crops uh, that were contenders for the landscape back in the 1880s and 90s, and some of the crops that were grown by the mission padres and the crops that were... Part of other analog regions as you know alternatives to citrus, as you know attendants to citrus, as um, as uh, you know potential contenders for that for that space on the landscape, and and going into the logic of those early nurserymen, and and they were mostly men; they weren't women, really, <laughs> but those guys who were importing fruits from around the world to see what was going to be. Viable commercially in this landscape, and even just in that process, getting reacquainted with the way of thinking, uh-huh. um, uh, and the way of interacting with the plant and what the plants were, you know, what the plants can do and what they express and what they know and yeah, um, what they're so that that's exciting to get back into that way of thinking.
3: Oh absolutely. It it sounds so it sounds so powerful the idea of dislodging the singular from a stance of dominance, right? Like w- whether it's dislodging a human-centric view of the world, right? That where all of these natural resources are are here f- just solely for our purpose. I think that that dislodging is a really powerful one, right? And that's what I understand. You, uh, you, um, Severin, echoing. Um, it's it's so incredible, it's, it's humbling to to move, make that move. And I, I really hear that that move also drawing parallels along lots of different types of. Dominant centers that are ripe for ad- for for dislodging right whether it 's um, our male centered notion of what it means to be a farmer in the United States right whether it 's our white centric notion of what it means to be property owner farmer in the United States, and that I think that work um, is so integral and it 's hard i think it's really hard, and I think it requires a lot of compassion and a lot of um, Courage, at the same time. That's thanks for sharing. That's really awesome.
2: Well, yeah. Um, well, and you know, this is a thing we've been saying lately. Is or I've been noticing. I think partially because of the political discourse. Is you know who is what we are we talking about in the we that we are talking and the we of the New York Times or the we of Donald Trump or the we of white. Man, one percent, or the we of educated people, or the we of urban people, or the you know, if you start parsing into the we of all sorts of we statements that get flung around, uh, it's very soon very obvious that um, it's not a very inclusive we, and it's right, certainly right. not a, a we that's that's that. I was, it's not a relevant we.
3: <laughs> it's not a we that's relevant to the reality. Right, and and it's so We will say And it it seems so easy to um, Think of a Singular notion of we when you're in A homogenous environment, right Um, I, I Dream of and try to practice all kinds of conversations across so many different lines of difference. And I, I definitely think that's one thing we are we are sorely lacking in our political system right now. Um, having an, a diversity of voices um, at the table, speaking actually and listening to each other, that would be a radical notion in my book.
2: Again, what's the vessel? What's the vessel for that? And is there a vessel for that in American agriculture? Um, I know that's been one of the the powerful trends in American agriculture. I just learned last week the statistic that in 1910, 13% of U.S. farms were black-owned, and today it's less than 1% of farms under um, African-American lineage ownership. Mm-hmm. And the contraction of ownership uh, uh, of minority ownership has been one of the you know powerful trends. I know in the last census um, that Latino farm operators increased, um, as did women farm operators. But in looking forward at the trends that we face, And the the patterns that are prevalent now, if we think about the fact that 70% of American agricultural land or U.S. agricultural land is owned by people over the age of 65, Uh it does seem a pretty relevant time to look at trends and try to extrapolate forward into the near future and say, well, you know, who will own this land? You know, and will it be a person or will it be an LLC? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, are those spaces even more exclusive and, you know, a constrained we, an urban we, a corporate a corporate we, uh, an investor we? Um, and so if... So, again, I guess just trying to find the vessel where this discourse can happen and, and say, well, then where would we put ourselves to have this discourse in the context of Transition, agricultural transition. I don't have an answer, but that's definitely the the question that I want to ask: is where to put oneself when there's so much work to be done and so much planning and experimentation, and there's so many more people to involve um, in a landscape that's becoming desertified of people.
3: Yeah, I definitely think you're you're speaking to the formidable challenge of how we change the, the structures of our policies and our, our world, right? Um, and so I, I, let, me charge, let me charge you, Miss
2: Peach, to um, turn us around. We have like one minute left. Um, mm-hmm. Where um, Can you point us towards some peachy places, people who are interested to learn about peaches and
3: peaching? Um and yes. Yes. I'm. I'm really excited. Just this week uh, begins a rollout of a documentary film that was um, produced about the, our family farm. We're incredibly hum- humbled. In um, this documentary, you'll get to see a lot of what we do, uh, lots of peach juice, and it's going to be played um, on, on local PBS stations across the country um, th- throughout the month of May. So that's one source. Um, there's some fantastic books um, about peaches. Whether there's an academic text um, that's amazing out of Washington, um, and my dad, David Mas- Masumoto, has written of a lot of the soul of the peach farmer too. Um, for to anybody who who needs some nourishment there, um, and my dad and I just are publishing a book together that's coming out next month called Changing Season, which takes up a lot of questions of generational transition um, on our family farm and both of the pleasures, delights and also the challenges of that work.
2: Wow, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for sharing your your peachy story with us and um, I hope that anybody who is so inspired will go out there and look for yourself and get Get messy. Get your face messy with it.
3: Yes, juices dripping down your chin. That's what we want. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me, Severin.
2: Thank you, Nikki. Bye-bye.
3: Bye.
1: The one and only Dave Arnold brings the noise to Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday on Cooking Issues. Coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network from Revertus Pizzeria in Bushwick and Brooklyn.
0: If the bomb was going to drop and you only had 15 minutes, which is like, I can, I can
1: make a sandwich in 15 minutes. you would be eating a sandwich. I, I'd kiss my wife, make a sandwich. If you believe that it's all about to be over, why eat healthy? I'm not a freaking Neanderthal. I like a tempered ice cream sandwich. But well, it's the only way to get around it if you're a party master because you, you're going to wind up, like, your kitchen's going to fill with dishes. And Some is there- people have commercial dishwashers in their house. Who? I've seen them. Who? I've seen them. Who? <laughs> really rich people. <laughs> For more Mile-A-Minute knowledge from Dave and the crew, listen to Cooking Issues, available on Heritage Radio Network, iTunes, and Stitcher.